0: Opportunity to speak on the Hill because it's the home of the branch of government that we educate us to whose uh, foreign power policy we educate us that they're actually trying to enhance. So, uh, I think if everybody disagrees with me on you know, what I say, we can sit it So we're here, uh, as you know, to talk about this paper. about wrote about Iraq, along with policy my advisor. Uh, one of my advisors at MIT is not here. And uh, you know, the origins of the paper were. Uh, Really, in the summer of 2006, I think Harvey and I were sitting around at MIT in his office. I was extensively working for him. And uh, I was complaining a lot about these papers I'd read uh, about how Iraq demonstrates uh, the failures of the U.S. national security establishment planning and coordination, uh, and therefore uh, that we need to fix the interagency process and uh, to achieve unity of effort, which is what uh, we here in future wars like Iraq. And I was also complaining then and now about sort of the wild enthusiasm we see uh, in the United States for the counterinsurgency mission on the whole uh, and growing the U.S. ground forces to serve that mission, all based on the idea that if we had had a larger army interact with better counterinsurgency tactics, that uh, things would have gone better. So out of these lessons, so these supposed lessons, flow reforms, most of which have happened, meant to make the American uh, national security establishment better occupier or make it uh, in the old adage, the army of our policies. So, we got new interagency planning processes for stabilization missions, including a new office in the State Department to take in these matters. We have a proposal for a civilian corps from various agencies like Treasury and Agriculture for bureaucrats to be rapidly deployed to uh, occupations. Um, we have uh, more consequentially uh, a plan underway to expand the size of the Army and Marine Corps and Army Brigades. And of course, we have various forms in the services themselves to uh, improve counter service to so Now, all this frustrated us, and Chris, in slightly different ways because we thought, in some ways, it missed the point. Uh, Iraq shows, in our opinion, something we already knew as a country, but maybe we forgot, which is that we lack the power to reorder foreign societies at least at a reasonable cost. So performing the means of doing so, while beneficial if you plan on repeating these sorts of uh, wars, it's not the right lesson, or at least it's not the primary lesson. Um, these reforms certainly might be helpful, and I would never blame the military for advocating them because they, after all, are the ones who have to execute the mission. But these reforms are dangerous if they bestow American leaders with false confidence, they can do things that they probably cannot. Um, to use a somewhat inflammatory analysis, it's like, to me, it's like drinking a handle of Jack Daniels, driving your car 90 miles an hour down a dark road, going off a cliff, while you're in the hospital recovering, saying that you've learned a lesson of the incident with the brighter headlights. Um, now, I'm all for brighter headlights for uh, Trump, less it encourages them to drive. Um, so, we, what I'm saying is that when you preview that there's a better way to occupy, there was a better way to occupy Iraq, uh, but there was no good way. Um, so very quickly, inadequately, uh, let me just say, uh, because there's not time, let me just say why. A uh, better execution wouldn't have saved us from so we'll some bad consequences in Iraq, uh, why is a strategic failure or failure of ends not means. Um, essentially I think it comes down to your theory of, of what's causing the violence and in the insurgency in Iraq. The dominant view, the first theory, is that by invading US military strips Saddam <laughs> the same regime of its monopoly on force in Iraq, but failed because of a lack of claim in Washington to <laughs> fill the resulting power back. Because we didn't plan sufficiently, we hadn't had enough troops, the police were at more good enough tactics to keep these. Um, without a government monopolizing violence, we've gone with anarchy where Iraq's tribes and factions armed themselves and became pseudo-governance, where the prospect of being manhandled by other factions and militias uh, drove uh, people to arm themselves, and you got defensive attacks men as self-defense. Um, the story continues that the coalition provisional authorities stoked the insurgency with angry Sunnis by firing uh, most of the Baathists who uh, helped run the Iraqi state bureaucracy, and by allowing the army. To and as the insurgency grew in the summer and fall of 2003, we hear the U.S. Army employed overly aggressive counterinsurgency tactics, raids and sweeps in particular that wage, enraged the population and put a lot of uh, innocent people in prison. These mistakes compounded, reduced a raging Sunni insurgency. And uh, the state, therefore, couldn't get back on its feet, of the idea of a unified, multi-ethnic country facing we struggled to restore today. That's the standard view that produces the reforms uh, that, that I already mentioned and some others. Um, the other theory, the one that I subscribe to, uh, is that by removing Saddam Hussein, the United States basically opened a series of what are thus far irreconcilable conflicts in Iraq between groups who have been held together by terror, groups that have different visions for what a peaceful Iraq would look like. Without liberal norms, Iraqis weren't equipped to settle those conflicts peacefully and share power, and that makes civil strife in Iraq highly probable if not inevitable. The mistakes just listed probably made things worse, but they were not causal, as we like to say, in political science departments, in producing violent contention in Iraq. Um, in that scenario, the second was not only predictable, but predicted, not just, in some sense, by some of the pre-war estimates put together by parts of the US government, uh, but by the first Bush administration, that decided not to put to Baghdad in 1991, well, as everyone knows. Um, it follows that fixing the problems thought to have caused these errors will not cause success in Iraq or Afghanistan today, nor in the future wars like. Uh, so, let me explain what I mean by attacking some of the popular ideas. I want to touch on three things. First, planning in general and the limits of planning. Uh, secondly, you know, on, on troop levels. And third, on counterinsurgency doctrine. I'm going to have to skip over solving the, the argument and applications for time, and I can talk about it in the if people want. So planning and cooperation and coordination—excuse me. Now coordination is really part of planning. I hope you'll see what I mean when I talk about it. Um, in, a, in a classic article called "If Planning Is Everything, Maybe It's Nothing," political scientist Aaron Lodowski, uh points out that there are limits to what plans can accomplish, largely because other people's plans often compete with our own, even if we're the president of the United States. This shows that planning is really an attempt at power, and so the limits of planning are the limits on our power. Uh, for example, if, if you want to remodel your kitchen. Uh, it's, it's pretty easy. Your plan should succeed because there's usually not a lot of competition. So you what know, Your kitchen's gonna look like you got the money, you hire a contractor. Unless your wife wants to do something different than her plans. Like that. Um, if a state plans to build a new road, uh, similarly that generally works because it has the funds and the bureaucratic capacity to do so. There's not a lot of competition on who builds roads and states. Although it has to do with taking and just it, a little more complicated. Uh, but when a state say, plans to do have better schools, you start to see the limits of planning because schools depend on controlling parents and teachers and there's just a limit of your power. can come. Now applying this to Iraq, the planner of course competes against other would-be planners. Trump style has plans, Colin Powell has plans for what the post-war is going to look like. So the competition of plans is a struggle for power within the U.S. government. Uh, now, interagency reformers and think tanks tend to see the struggle uh, in the run-up for Iraq state fighting the defense and so on, and say, oh, we need better coordination of agencies. So to me, that, that analysis is confused. It ignores the fact that the problem isn't coordination, but different designs, visions, and uh, plans, uh, competing preferences for what the outcome of our policy is going uh, to look like, different policies. And uh, in fact, the agencies themselves are supposed to have different outlooks and preferences. That's how the government works. Uh, the State Department, the Defense Department manifest different goals in U.S. society by design that they fight. That's how liberal government works. Sorry you could say, but the president is supposed to settle those fights, he could have forced more coordination on his subordinates. In this case, the Bush administration allowed the Department of Defense to dominate planning for the post-war. in back, but the Defense Department and the OSD, at least didn't want an application, or They wanted one, one in a very brief one, so the board plans the other agencies for that. Then the administration, somewhere at the end of the conventional phase of the war, changed its mind and settled a longer occupation and gave the job to the CPA that hadn't been involved in doing the planning that OSD
1: threw away. Um, So,
0: that, in anyone's estimation, is a screwed up process, certainly. But I think it's 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 not a problem of bureaucratic design or having the right process, uh, of having the wrong process or the wrong meetings. It's a problem of leadership. And I think you solve that problem with elections, not bureaucratic tweaking. Um, but that's, that's just one side, that's just our side of the ocean. Uh, to execute our plans for Iraq, Iraqi cooperation is required. And if, I think if we've demonstrated anything in Iraq, it is our incapacity to impose our preferences on Iraqi society, and government, despite all our troops and government, all, all our troops and money uh, in Iraq. Uh, again, that's a, power, that's a problem of power, not So it's, it's not a Washington, D.C. problem. It's a it's Baghdad problem. It's beyond us. Uh, I mean, to be honest, it, fits, it doesn't matter how much we coordinate and plan it in the United States. Um, so let me move on to troop levels. Um, now everyone says the United States should set a far larger occupation force uh, into Iraq. 150,000 or so. We have not started the occupation in Baghdad. Uh, a better plan would total that two or three times that number at a, at a ratio of roughly 20 security personnel per thousand population, as to as we can manage. Uh, and that figure is principally based on some man studies. It was the basis uh, for Eric Shinseki's famous pre-war testimony saying he had several hundred thousand troops, um, which of course got him in trouble with his losses. Two points on this topic. First, to me, the empirical basis of the idea that flooding a country with troops will automatically pacify is weak. In history, there are cases where a few foreign troops pacify a large population, and many cases where a very large occupa- occupation force failed to pacify a small country. Um, because of nationalism, foreign troops are as likely to spark resistance as to quell it, uh, especially in Iraq the really, as in Iraq when really, you start off uh, some counterproductive tactics. Secondly, on want top, Even if you believe that putting troops on every block is, is the key to preventing rebellions abroad, to, to preventing anarchy from forming, uh, the arithmetic of occupation cautions against doing it very often. Um, if we had sent the troop levels to Iraq, which in second, people like the one, say 300,000, almost all of them would have to rotate out in uh, 10 or 12 months. And short of a massive guard activation, uh, the numbers of U.S. troops in the country would have then dropped precipitously. Uh, assuming that the Iraqi military would have been ready to police the state at that point, which I think is a safe assumption, then the problems of the hierarchy would have emerged only with the leg. Um, also, you know, <coughs> the inability of the U.S. military military to sustain the sufficient force levels or suggested force levels. Police of Iraq, which has 25 million people, shows how few occupations uh, we can manage properly even with the Bigger Army and uh, Marine. Iran uh, has 70 million people, Pakistan has 160 million, 160 million people. Well, policing Pakistan at the troop level, as Iran suggests, will require more troops than NATO has, period, before you even rotate once. Um, so if you believe that low troop levels cause the bond to stir back, you should also see how hard it is to sustain sufficient troop levels, therefore you, know, you should be cautious about occupations. The final point uh, is about counterinsurgency. Bottom line is you can be better or worse at it, but you can't be good at it when it's not in the country. I think you know there's secessionists, there's I think about 25 or 30 secessionists in Burlington, Vermont. If they want to perform an in insurgency against the United States, we'd we'll be very good at putting it down. But not by putting insurgency down halfway around the world. Um, the standard story about counterinsurgency in the back is the US military was encouraged after Vietnam to forget how to fight insurgents, and mostly did forget those lessons. This learned version of the counterinsurgency, the story goes through our failure in the back. The army's disdain for occupation duties uh, explains why General Franks, paid so little attention to so-called phase 4 operations and pre-war planning. Uh, and like the West border years in Vietnam, the US military and Iraq initially treated the insurgency sort of like a conventional foe and used offensive high-intensity operations rather than population defense, intelligence gathering, and politicking to combat it. Now I think that story is largely correct in its analysis of what sort of went on with our ground forces, but I think you have to be careful about assuming that A, the problem can be fixed, and B that it's the unmitigated good fix uh, fixer getting better at it. The counterinsurgency manual that David Petraeus helped write is actually helpful in thinking about this because it identifies political political reconciliation as a key measure of success in defeating insurgencies, and I think that's right. But the manual's recognition of that really points to the limits of what counterinsurgency doctrine can accomplish because outside authorities often lack the power to solve political problems, the political problems that cause insurgencies, as we see today in Iraq. um there's the fact that maybe there are some problems it might just be bad to have expertise in. And radical as that might sound, it used to be the American view. By design, our army is meant to destroy other armies, not to build states. By design, our State Department is not a colonial service. It's meant to relate to foreign states, not to run them. These policies are not absence. Uh, they reflect, I think, lasting national interests, namely disinclination to subjugate foreign people and lose. Unnecessary wars. These are lessons of history that we've institutionalized in our bureaucracies and in our, in our, in our military. Uh, Americans have historically looked askance at the small wars European powers fought to maintain imperial holdings, viewing those actions as a liberal and unjust. Misadventures like Vietnam are the exceptions that make that rule. Vietnam, after all, brought us the Weinberg Powell Doctrine, which was intended to prevent counterinsurgency and state building missions. The doctrine which uh, came out of the 80s. Hold on, uh, US leaders <coughs> say they want to go to board, prepare overwhelming force, generate strong national support, flying terror jackets, and have a plan for leaving before using the military, which is basically a formula of never doing counter insurgencies. Um now, what people will say was well, okay, fine, but all this has changed because of terrorism. Now we have to have conscience. The usual story is terrorists organize and train in places where government authority is limited, like Taliban and Afghanistan. Prevent that the US needs the ability to authority abroad or resurrect it from chaos. The policy prescription is that we need to be able to occupy and pacify several foreign states at once and rebuild their in institutions. So counterinsurgency in this view, uh, counter terrorism excuse me, in this view becomes counterinsurgency and state. Now, I think that's wrong. I think it burdens a problem we can be good at, which is counter-terrorism, with one we cannot be good at, which is counter-insurgency. Um, think failed states are something of a phony problem. The idea that chaos in states causes terrorism fails to meet the most basic causality sniff test, which is there's no correlation. A few anarchic states, Afghanistan, Algeria, maybe Iraq, have arguably produced terrorists, but the vast majority of failed states have not. Even in Afghanistan, the problem is more that the government of Taliban allied with al-Qaeda than was no government. Um, Repairing all failed states, or even a large portion of them, or even a small portion of them. Fear of terrorism would be an imperial project that would make the moments think. It would be far more costly than the problem it is meant to solve, uh, in part because nationalism means people tend to res- uh, resent and resist the uh, I think pairing a large number of failed states will also seem to vindicate terrorist propaganda that the US is attacking Islam. Most of the time failed states are inhospitable to everyone, including terrorists, including us. Uh, in most failed states, uh, most failed states simply don't affect our security. Where terrorists do appear in them, we can use conventional military teams to strike them and therefore deter states from hosting them without running the state, without social engineering. Counterterrorism does not require counterinsurgency, which means we should be cautious about transforming the national security establishment to reflect unconventional uh, war. Where we do make reforms to improve our ability to fight those wars, we should be wary of overstating our expertise and our competence. What we have gained, I think, in Iraq and Afghanistan are maybe a set of best practices, but not solutions. Um, the real lesson of Iraq is to recognize the limits of our power. Now, however much we plan and coordinate and train, we can't solve those foreign problems because they involve politics that are not our own. We need to learn to live with a lot of problems overseas or to best try to manage them. Uh, maybe we can get better at foreign occupations, but the principal lesson Iraq teaches is to avoid them. And finally, we should keep in mind that preserving our power often requires restraint.
1: I'm going to uh, take this in a slightly different direction. I will will overlap a little bit of what Ben said and try to highlight it. My point here, my object, is to try to take some of the particular lessons that uh, Ben has talked about that we lay out in the paper and try to draw even even broader lessons as it applies to the future of uh, U.S. foreign policy. But before I begin, I, I want to set the context a little bit because. I had a whole litany of really depressing statistics related to the war, and I'm not even going to go into those. But the bottom line is that even supporters of this war have admitted that it has not gone as well as expected. The most recent one was Lawrence Kaplan, who co-wrote with William Priscilla, one of the most important books, Making the Case for War. And uh, Kaplan last week, in an interview with, uh, with Der Spiegel, uh, admitted that you know, it was a mistake. Uh, not it was a mistake merely in execution, but it was a mistake uh, from conception. And I think that aside from the effects on our troops, we know about the strains of the troops and the strains on their families and, uh, and whatnot. Uh, the effects at home, I think, so far have been largely political. Um, and it's interesting, there was a story that uh, Michael Isikoff and David Corn tell in their book Hubris uh, when the White House ramped up the marketing campaign to make the case for war with Iraq um, in August of 2002. Uh, Dick Armey warned the president, quote, If you go in there, you're likely to be stuck in a quagmire that will endanger your domestic agenda for the rest of your presidency. Um, he was right. So it happened. Uh, obviously, uh, many of you know, uh, perhaps some with pleasure, some with great pain, uh, the GOP lost control of Congress in November 2006, and in, in large measure, I because of the word in Iraq. The recent uh, special election suggests that the GOP brand has. has uh, suffered a very serious blow. But there's also just in terms of the, the President's political capital, I remember very well, right after the re-election, in November of 2004, the President boasted that he had uh, accumulated or had in his possession all of his political capital that was going to use for important domestic priorities, like performing Social Security and things like that. But he spent that capital. He spent it in Iraq. He spent it trying to mobilize, sustain, and uh, and keep going in Iraq. And so whatever capital he had, uh, it's gone, and he's not going to get it back. And the passage of the uh, farm bill is only the mm-hmm. latest evidence of that. The White House really does not have a lot of a lot of authority anymore. Right? At least funds that can be linked up. So, how did we get here? When you look at the the conduct of the war, but not the conduct so much as the planning that went into the war, and Ben alluded to this. Look at this. There was was planning done prior to war in Iraq. There were people who had uh, particular expertise on on Iraq, on the region, on the nature of occupation, on the difficulties we were likely to encounter. And uh, and their warnings were consistently ignored. One of my favorite examples of this, there were actually three uh, national intelligence estimates prepared by the CIA. The one that uh, pertained to WMD is the one that's gotten the most attention. There were two others, one pertaining to what was going to happen, what was likely to happen inside of Iraq after the lose down power, and the other one pertaining to what was likely to happen in the region, again, the whole falling dominoes or not. Um, and uh, uh, Paul Pillar, who at the time was the national intelligence officer for the U.S. in South Asia, when he raised these issues, uh, he was told, you just don't see the possibility, you're too negative. Um, well, with all due respect, neocons are all about seeing the possibility and there are possibilities out there everywhere. Uh, there are just Democrats waiting to be let loose and spring forth. But what's striking about their attitude is it's kind of the optimism-pessimism scenario because just as they are optimistic that good things will, will set in train by, by taking uh, military action against some of these tin pot dictators, they're equally pessimistic or maybe even more pessimistic that horrible things will ensue if we don't take action yes, against them. This is where I want to follow on what uh, Ben said about Kind of recognizing that certain problems are manageable, and just because you take early action does not mean you make things better. Sometimes you make things worse. Which relates to a kind of long standing uh, skepticism of international relations theorists to preventive war. Bismarck uh, referred to preventive war as committing suicide for fear of death. Uh, And and I think that's a good line. I don't normally quote Bismarck, but in this particular case, I think it's useful. Because again, it presumes that some horrible train of events way, way in the future is going to happen, unless you take action right now. And the president used uh, the 9-11 attacks as a a way to, you might say, even very creatively, take a a well-established concept of preemption, that is, uh, attacking someone before they attack you, when when they're preparing to attack you, when there is an imminent threat, and expanding that concept into prevention, which has been pretty much universally rejected. So at each step along the way, on the path to war, the president and his advisers were warned of the ramifications and they ignored them. And I've even heard some people say that the scope of this disaster is so great that it calls into question whether the entire foreign policy-making process uh, is broken, it's falling apart. It's not just interagency cooperation. It's, it's can we even get this right ever? Um, well, I think we can if. We study the problems of Iraq in, in, in a clear and dispassionate way, and Harvey, Ben, and I have tried to do that in our paper, um, but I think, and, and what's tragic is that some of the lessons that we've learned from studying Iraq, we could have learned without going to Iraq, and let me offer a couple of them to you, Ben's already alluded to this, the military cannot impose a political settlement, okay, this is not what one of the things the military can do. One of my favorite papers on this was written by David Henderson and Robert Tucker back in uh, 2005 at the the Army War College, said, of course, there are certain limits to what military power can accomplish for certain purposes, like the creation of a liberal democratic society. that will be a model for others. Military power is a blunt instrument destined by its very nature to give rise to unintended and unwelcome consequences. Again, that argument when I first read it in 2005 seemed perfectly uh, obvious to me. It was not obvious uh, to the Planners and the Advocates for War drop, and my concern is that it is still not obvious. Um, A second lesson. When you use the military uh, to overthrow an established political order, uh, this will engender resistance. Uh, The resistance will come from the people who had something and then you took it away from them and they want it back and they're going to fight to get it. Again, seems like a fairly obvious point to me and I've tried to understand why it, it is not as obvious to others and I think it comes down to American exceptionalism is a very good way to explain this. Look, the United States is not an occupier. We are a liberator. We liberated France. We liberated Kuwait. We are not occupiers. And so we believe that our intentions are good, and we believe that they are transparently good to the people on whose behalf we are asking. But again, uh, that may be true of the people who are being liberated, but we are liberating them from the people who, well, you didn't. with all due respect, whether we see ourselves as an occupier or not is irrelevant. It's how they see us and how, how we are likely to, to deal with that. Well, closely related to that is the question of troop levels. We hear it all the time, Ben as already mentioned this, year hear it all the time. But if only we had more troops in Iraq, uh, we would not have encountered any of these problems. Well, well, you know, frankly, I take away an entirely different lesson. There. People don't like being bossed around, and they especially don't be like being bossed around by foreigners. So, more troops might have simply uh, uh, made, made things worse, with all due respect. Um, and, and again, we should anticipate resistance. But we should not assume that, uh, having had more troops on the ground, uh, that it necessarily wouldn't, and, uh, uh, that that resistance would evaporate just kind of magically. Uh, a third point. Uh, we have, I think, a, a very healthy uh, cultural predisposition against bossing around more. As a general rule, we are not an empire. We have not liked an empire what people suggest we are. We are very angry. Uh, I like Ben's formulation very well. Our State Department is meant for dealing with countries not running. Uh, we do not have a colonial office, even though a few people think we should. Uh, we published a paper a couple years ago by Jeffrey Record, professor of the War College, and he concluded the United States runs significant risk of failure in small wars of choice, and great power intervention in small wars is almost always a matter of choice. Again, it seems rather obvious to me. Um, Most such wars do not engage core U.S. security interests other than placing the limits of American power on embarrassing display. They are primarily political struggles and only secondarily military contests, and the very presence of foreign combat forces can provoke insurgent attack and undermine the legitimacy of the war. Again, a lesson that we could have learned uh, before going into Iraq. Um, so, having laid out those specific lessons with respect to Iraq, let me try to, to expand that a little bit and, and see how we apply this going forward to the conduct of our foreign policy. and not in Iraq per se, but uh, in terms of future military interventions and the people uh, calling for future military interventions. Uh, I think the most important one, uh, kind of at the outset, when you're thinking about a war of choice, again, Iraq was clearly a war of choice. The president said when I asked why we were for war now, because the costs of inaction. Outweigh the cost of that. Classic formulation. I have no idea where he comes up with that number, but he believes he's very strongly. Well, Colin Powell uh, believed otherwise, we're told. Uh, if you believe uh, Bob Woodward's account, I think in this case it's probably good. It's known popularly as the pottery buying principle if you break it, you own it. But what Powell actually said was even more receptive than that Quote, You're going to be the proud owner of 25 million people, he warned the president in August 2002. You will own all their hopes, aspirations, and problems. It's going to suck the oxygen out of everything, everything else you can do. And oh, by the way, those 25 million people's hopes and aspirations, they don't all have the same hopes and aspirations. So good luck with them. Second, we need an accurate accounting of the costs and risks. And this accounting must include a presumption that we will be obligated, either morally or strategically, or both, to occupy the country for some period of time. Okay, now, this is not the governing assumption going in. It is clear from everything we know from all the many very good books written on this that Don Rumsfeld, and all of which did not intend to have many tens of thousands of troops in Iraq by the end of 2003. In fact, maybe perhaps pass as few as 25,000 troops. It's a number that seems absolutely absurd to us today, and yet this was the governing assumption. Uh, but I think that is, that is false. You have to assume that some Measure of occupations were to be necessary, and when you take an accurate account of what it is likely to cost to do this, do not use Japan and Germany as your models. Uh, We now know that Japan and Germany, after World War II, were extraordinarily rare cases, and uh, most occupations are extraordinarily costly, and in fact, the majority of them fail. Um, uh, Just by the way, uh, Cato is hosting later on this month. David Edelstein is a professor at Georgetown University, who's just published a very fine book called Occupational Hazards, and Professor Edelstein goes into great detail, documenting the many occupational failures over history of acts, going back to the Napoleonic era, and explaining what the conditions are for likely success. And they are few, and it is difficult to achieve success even when you uh, execute an occupation well. So, mm-hmm. you have this careful accounting of the likely costs and risks, then apply an additional filter. And I, and I call this kind of the skepticism filter. We know that everyone comes into decisions with governing preconceptions, they have ideas about how things are likely to work, and they're likely to kind of shunt to the side people who have different arguments or explanations. And I think we have to give extra weight to competing interpretations of what's likely to ask. Try to understand people's, kind of understand the kind of normal human tendency to believe what we want to believe, and then turn it over. In other words, Put the onus on those making the case for war, not those arguing against. What a concept. What a, what a shocking concept. Uh, the corollary to this, uh, briefly, is beware of exiles. Uh, because, you know, these folks have a very good reason for wanting you to overthrow the government of that of them. Uh, and, again, you should apply a certain scrutiny, a certain filter to what they're telling you. And, again, we didn't have to go to Iraq to learn this. We all know about neutrality and the INC. But we also had, it, had that experience right after the, uh, the, the Cuban Revolution. <coughs> we had a whole host of folks who were exiled from Cuba uh, in Miami telling the president that if you send in just a few thousand uh, troops to the Bay of Tates, uh, the government would fall like of cards. So this is a long standing problem for the United States. Uh, if um, what this all comes down to is asking hard questions, really, really hard questions, before we go to war. And my favorite hard question of all uh, was asked by a general <clears throat> who some of you may know. Um, there's a story in this fine book by Rick Atkinson, who's a, uh, a reporter for the Washington Post and a company of soldiers, and he was embedded in the 101st Airborne Division. Uh, going into Iraq in March of 2003. Uh, He was posted uh, alongside the general of this particular division, and he was going along, and he turned to the general and said, well, you know, things are going very well. Look, you're sweeping the enemy before you. The field is clear. You're suffering very few casualties. Everything's going exactly as planned. The general turned to him and said, tell me how this ends. Seems like a pretty fair question. Anyone know who that general was? 101st Airborne, March 2003, General David Petraeus. So, five years ago, General Petraeus understood the crucial question. The question today is does he still understand? That is the crucial question. And will we remember that as the crucial question the next time around. Thank you very much.